Howard Hendricks was fond of saying, some people have a lifelong ambition to have a lifelong ambition. And that's about as far as they get. I've met people before who had an ambition and a thought and an idea that, boy, they were really going to have a great marriage. They had a lifelong ambition to have a great marriage, but somehow seemed just never to get to the point where they were working substantially on that great marriage together. By the way, do you know what is conspicuously absent from a hospice care end-of-life situation? It's bucket lists. Nobody at that point is sitting around making long bucket lists because there's no time to realize anything. Not only is today the day of salvation, as the scripture says, today is a day of opportunity that you and I have in life to honor our Lord. We had a neat staff meeting in January where we reviewed our, everybody sitting around the table reviewed our goals that we had for 2021 and the things that were realized, the things yet to be accomplished. And then we established some goals for this coming year and articulated them for 2022. Some were personal goals, some were ministry goals. And I, I was edified and appreciated one brother seated at that table who said, in 2022, I want to give myself to a fresh pursuit of my wife. And I thought, oh, that's, that's wonderful. I, I appreciate that. If that spirit spreads at Calvary, like the Omicron COVID variant, this place will pulsate with life. Coach Sean McVeigh of the Los Angeles Rams shook up the last media appointment he had when they asked him about his future with the Rams and his future in coaching. What is he, 36 years old? His reply was interesting. He's going to be married this summer. He said, I am so looking forward to marriage and family. And I know what it costs to be a coach. And I'm not sure how long I can continue if that's what I want. And the sports press, of course, were flummoxed. What? You're 36 years old. You're at the pinnacle. You're right there. But there was a man who stepped into the arena. I know not his faith commitment in anything. But I do know that he expressed value in family. Something God would have applauded over his job in the midst of being outstandingly successful. That stuck out. Do you think a church radiating with a joy of healthy marriages has something to say to our broken world in this moment? Let's be that church. Let's reach for that together. I want to stop for a couple of important disclaimers. This is disclaimer number one stop this morning. If you're here this morning and you are married and this is a tough marriage moment, I want you to know at Calvary that you are loved 
that we are realistic. By the way, I, have a, I love my wife. We have a good marriage. But it's two sinners who are broken and forgiven, living under the same roof, that periodically run into each other. And the only way forward is to pour grace on it and levy forgiveness time and again, and we get on well. If you're here this morning and you're hurting, this message may be pounding on your heart. I want you to know that we'd love to help you. I was just telling Doug Duty that I thought of he and Pam all week. Doug heads up with a team of others, our REACH Biblical Counseling Ministry, and quietly, confidentially, I know of work. God's using them as an instrument in his right hand and left with others. If you need encouragement, there's means in the bulletin this morning on how you can reach out to reach. If you're listening to this message and you're saying, wow, those are high platitudes never realized by us in marriage. We're going through a hard point. We'd love to be next to you, cheer for you with grace and truth, walk into the future. Close frame, end of disclaimer number one or point uh, a thought with you. I want you to open your Bible to Matthew 26. We come to a fever pitch moment in the narrative about Jesus in which he's just about ready to be arrested. In fact, as Matthew lays it out, it's interesting because he lays out this history, this story of the woman with the alabaster flask that breaks it and anoints Jesus. Uh, the disciples get upset. They are generically identified as the disciples. John identifies it as the spokesperson who's giving voice to being upset is Judas Iscariot. But then Matthew shows that Mary has extravagant devotion to Christ and spends all, watch for the phrase, very expensive in this narrative. And yet you get up to Judas Iscariot, and he walks out of this meeting and sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Juxtaposed together, it's an expression of the value in each of their hearts. It's interesting. Watch for that. This morning, I'd like to go two different directions. First, I want to talk about the state of marriage in America in this moment. The author to the book of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13.4, Honor marriage above all. Whatever we're doing as a culture, it seems not that we are honoring biblical marriage. I want to talk about that because this is the context we find ourselves in. This is where we live. This is where we are raising our children. These are the ideas that we are grappling with in this moment. And there's never been a day where we needed God's truth his way for our good more clearly articulated. So first, the state of marriage. Secondly, three pointed charges to us from this story of the woman. Now, before I read the passage, I want to talk to you about this present moment in marriage. What are we to make of this marital moment? This passage will come to be crystal clear and you'll understand why I would stop the series on miracles the day before Valentine's Day and reach for marital health here at Calvary. By the way, men, there, there, there is a few more 
powers to act before we get to February 14th, but that, that, that'll come later. Let's ponder three realities. Reality number one, our culture is in the process of nuking the nuclear family. Our culture is in the process of nuking the nuclear family. Now, it's interesting to Google definitions for the nuclear family, which are being revised, and it's very fluid, and all kinds of new things are added. By God's design, the basic unit of society has been from the garden at creation, a man and a woman brought together in covenant before God in marriage that would issue, as God would allow in children, and perpetuate the human race. The definition of nuclear family is a couple and their dependent children regarded as a basic social unit. Something essential, core members of a family. Now, please listen clear through this, what I'm about to say. February is Black History Month. It used to be a, a wonderful celebration of uh, persons that we would become acquainted with people that we hadn't thought about. The exploits of George Washington Carver, appreciating what it meant for Jackie Robertson to make it to the major leagues, looking at Colin Powell and his extraordinary career in the military, uh, thinking of uh, great black leaders in American history and celebrating them. Throughout America, the Black Lives Matter movement has published 13 guiding principles that they have asked and many elementary schools in America have adopted as a course of study during the month of February for Black History Month. Guiding principle number six says, please listen clear through, we are committed to fostering a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless they disclose otherwise. Guiding principle number seven, we are trans-affirming, committed to embracing and making space for trans-siblings. This is the transgender movement, the social construct built on perception. Committed to embracing and making space for trans-siblings to participate and lead. We are committed to being self-reflective and doing work required to dismantle cisgender we may understand that more as a straight person acting within the God-ordained means of their gender, dismantle cisgender, cisgender privilege, and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women. Guiding principle number 13. We are committed to disrupting the Western, that's as in Western culture, the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages 
and collectively care for one another. What appears to me that we've quit thinking about the heroes like the Tuskegee Airmen. And we're off to thinking about other things. In fact, if I was an African-American person, I would say to myself, I think somebody stole the thread. And this is going places that are beyond the appreciation of the uniqueness of an ethnic group. And this is what we want. 18 million children growing up in America without a father in the home. The statistics from those who study it are 71% of whom will drop out of school before they graduate. Do the math. Where does that take us generation on generation on generation as we go into the future? Our culture is in the process of nuking the nuclear family. That is not a hard-edged slam on black Americans at all. The second reality is we must repent of the role the church has played in getting us here. Now, I need to stop for disclaimer number two. Many people I love and highly respect have gone through the sadness of divorce. They never grew up wanting a divorce. When they got married, they weren't thinking about a divorce painful providence that they went through, long swallowed up by the grace of God. I've never met anyone who wanted a divorce nor desired it for their reputation. Divorce is not a scarlet letter nor an unrecoverable error. We don't lose our gifts to be used in the body of Christ when we go through a divorce. Remember, I, I had a person tell me once who had a Roman Catholic background, Eric, anytime you say anything about Roman Catholics, I feel like I'm being hit with a Louisville slugger. And dear ones who've gone through the sad providence of a divorce have uh, feel the same way whenever the D word is used at church. I love you. We are for you. Let's reach for holiness together. But don't forget this point, end of disclaimer. We must repent of the role the church has played in getting us here. You say, Eric, what role has the church played? Oh, I say, Eric, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you who's hurting the statistics. It's those liberal Protestants. Those liberal Protestants, they're really hurting us. Their, their statistics are bad. They don't believe anything. They, you know, theology has left the building, and, and they just, they're getting married and divorced. It's really hurting the statistics where people go to church. Well, forget that. How about gospel churches like our own and the statistics in gospel churches like our own all across America? Newsflash, our percentages are not any better than, forget liberal Protestants, the general public. Which has to say something about whether or not these deep streams in our culture are just streaming right through the church and affecting how we live. 
Some argue that we got, you know, because some people look out and say, oh, it's a wicked world out there. If you ask them, well, how did we ever get here? Dogs, terrible. Well, what role has a church played in getting us here? Some argue that the world looked into the church and said, I hear what you're saying, but I watch how you practice and have ordered your life. And I have two words for you. Shut up about marriage fidelity and all that a Christian marriage means between a man and a woman for life. What contribution have we made to this mess? Are we committed to support marriage here at Calvary? Are we helping young couples? Are we encouraging others to fight forward in faithfulness? Marriage is wonderful. But wonderful marriage will take everything out of you because the best marriages call for you to die to yourself and me to die to myself. And nobody likes to die. But the sooner we die, counterintuitively, the better it gets. That in crucifying ourselves, that's why we're ending at the Lord's table. You say, Eric, I want a healthy marriage. What should I look at? Look at the cross. Just keep looking at the cross. Keep looking at Jesus, who although he was God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, embracing even death, even death on the cross on our behalf. You say, Eric, what's the way forward in marriage? Look at the cross. The sooner we die, the better it'll get. Life will take place. We must repent of the role the church has played in getting us here. We're swimming in a culture committed to the great self and the autonomous self. Alan Noble, in his book, I Am My Own and I Belong to Myself, wrote this. Married adults in the West had the relatively common experience of waking up one day and concluding the roles Relationships, obligations, and lifestyles that once defined their identity are no longer fulfilling. And in that moment, a modern person can come to feel that it would be immoral not to follow this new, truer identity, even if it hurts people around them. Of course, if we really are responsible for discovering and expressing our identity, the moral pressure to be true to yourself regardless of how it affects others, makes perfect sense. And so people walk out to start over in a new recreated self. And here we are as a culture. The third reality I want to talk about is we need to celebrate and support marital health as never before. Since this is what it's like, has there ever been a day when it meant more at Calvary to do anything we can to stir up marital health among the people of God. I, uh, the reason I prayed for single adults is I come to a Sunday like this, which I believe is very important, and my conscience is all in, and I'm glad to be here. But I, I, I feel bad for people who are not married who are here, and I think, well, what, what, what are they going to feel like? What are they going to do? And I was kind of feeling bad in a Sunday like this once, and a single person surprised me. They came up to me, and they said, hey, Eric, I am so glad you preach that message. I go, well, tell me more about that. They said, well, I want to come to a place that's healthy, and I realize unless the families and marriages are healthy there, it's not going to be a healthy place 
And I just love to be a part of a healthy place, and I'm so glad you did that. And so that's why we're here. What are we doing to stimulate marital health? When is the last time that you prayed for our REACH Biblical Counseling Ministry? I know when the next time is going to be. If you're on Access Calvary, it'll be this week because it'll be one of the requests. When is the last time you prayed for marriages at Calvary? When is the last time you wrote a note of encouragement? You ever been around someone and you just saw their affection for their spouse? I mean, you listen to Christy talk about Troy, Paul talk about Amy. Oh, I just, I'm, I'm drawn to that. I, I, that's attractive. That's winsome. I appreciate that. I bless the Lord for that. What words of encouragement are we offering to couples? Have you ever bought a gift card to eat out and slipped it in a note and handed it to a young couple or a retired couple or a couple have been through some hard thing and said, hey, I see you, I'm praying for you, and I'm cheering for you. We need to celebrate and support marital health as never before. Now, what does this Mary have to say to our marriages on this Valentine's Day let me read Matthew 26, 1 through 16. Who knew all these years later we'd be talking about Mary? I'll tell you who knew. Jesus knew. Look at verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Verse 1, Matthew 26, the English Standard Version. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know, after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it out on his head. Remember, kings were anointed on their head. Anointed his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Hear the word of the Lord. Here in this passage, Mary brings some great life coaching for marriage in three different charges. Charge number one, we must keep in mind that marriage is finite and only for this life. Earlier, Jesus had said, and he makes an allusion to marriage and time and eternity, 
In Matthew 22, 30, he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The next wedding you go to, you need to really enjoy it because they're for time. There'll be no weddings in heaven. Now, by the way, as I've articulated this point before, I've had a, a widow be hurt. I'm not trying to minimize your relatedness to your spouse in eternity. Uh, we aren't like the Mormons who, you know, marry for forever and have spirit babies in the afterlife. I mean, that, that's crazy, not biblical. You will know your spouse. You will have a special relatedness to your spouse. Because nobody's going to get married again. And marriage is actually temporal. Marriage is actually temporary. It's uniquely suited for this life, ordained by God. It's like the angels. So you get to verse 11, and this point is very important. Jesus says to the disciples who are disgruntled at all this waste of money, we'll talk about that in a minute, you will not always have me. If you're seated next to your spouse, here's the gospel truth. And some of you are painfully aware of this. You will not always be seated together. Unless you go in an accident simultaneously, one of you will go into eternity first. You do not always have me. You know, we, we, we get married, we get on. The Clevelands just celebrated an anniversary this week. I was talking to them about it. It's great. I love anniversaries. Our family went to Uncle Lucian and Aunt Dorothy's 65th wedding anniversary. I was at Harold Ignavitz's house the other day with Miriam. He and Miriam have been married 65 years. Uh, it's wonderful. We were at the reception, and my dad went up to Aunt Dorothy and said, Hey, Aunt Dorothy, just you know, tell me. You know, after you're married 65 years, you know, what do you say to each other? You know. Oh, she said, Jack, we just look at each other, and I say to Lucian, how long is this going to last? <laughs> and she was being, just trying to be funny, and it was funny, you know. Um, here's the deal. It doesn't last long, even at its longest. Marriage at its longest seems way too short. It's a finite number of days. It's not an unbounded set. We don't have forever. This gets back to the Hendrix quote. If you've had a lifelong ambition to have a great marriage, you better get on with it. Because it only lasts for a few days. You only have so many days to be together. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. But here's the good news. We have today. So what are you doing today? And what are we doing to promote health with each other. We must keep in mind that marriage is finite and only for this life. Secondly, there are times and places for extravagant love. There are times and places for extravagant love. Look at chapter 26 and verse 7. 
a woman came to him. She's unnamed in Matthew. In the parallel accounts, we know that this is Mary, who appears three times in the Gospels. Luke 10, Martha's hustling around, making the meal. Where's Mary? She's at the feet of Jesus, listening and offering worship. Where's Mary when the raise, Lazarus is raised? She's at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus help her through this. Where's Mary here? Mary is on her knees. An alabaster flask would be a nice flask. The flask itself would be costly with a long snout on it made of glass that was real thin. And you, it was sealed, and you opened the bottle by breaking the snout on it and pouring out what is called very expensive ointment. Now, there was nard that they would get from India. Uh, here's what the text says. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive. It's not just expensive ointment. It's, he stacks the words up. Very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head and reclined at table. Now, if this says anything, it says this. Jesus is worth the best that we as his followers can offer him. What did you bring today? I'm not talking about your gift and the offering. I'm talking about your offering in your spirit to our Lord. You know what she did? She spared nothing. Uh, she gave the best that she had. This may have been a family heirloom, this alabaster jar. She broke it. She took advantage of the moment. And she anointed his feet. She wipes his feet with her hair. Now, a woman's glory, according to 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen is her hair. So here she is, surrendering her glory to him in what must have seemed like to those who observed it, a humiliation. But for her, it was, this is my opportunity to offer him something extravagant. It was very expensive ointment. Um, Malcolm Muggeridge English journalist with the BBC in a former generation was sent on an errand to go to Calcutta. This is not a carte blanche endorsement of Mother Teresa and what she did in Calcutta with the Sisters of Charity. But he, he went there, he filmed this series for the BBC, and he, he came back home, he's trying to figure out, what, what do I call this? What do we entitle this? And I love his title. Is not it a... Beautiful title for followers of Jesus to think about life. And here's what he said. The title was, Something Beautiful for God. You say, what's Mary doing? Mary is doing something beautiful for God. Now, he was going to be crucified as a criminal. Nobody was going to care for his body well. And before he ever got to his mortal state of lifelessness, she anoints his body. And he mentions that. Did she have that in mind? That's how Jesus interpreted it. That may have been farthest thing from her mind. She may have been doing the social thing of taking the best care of your guests. But she anoints his head. That's what you do to kings. She washes his feet. That's what you do to honored guests. And she offered something extravagant. 
Now, please notice what happens when she offered something extravagant. There was immediate pushback. This is real waste. Here she is doing something excellent, something beautiful for God. And what does she hear? I'll tell you what. We could have taken that money and done a lot better stuff in ministry with it than that. You know how many poor people we could have fed with that. That's terrible. By the way, it just says the disciples in John 12, 4 and 5, John identifies who said this. It's Judas Iscariot. The treasurer who had pilfered the box is concerned and offering this criticism. I'll tell you what, we should have done better. We, 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 this could have really gone better for ministry. It's interesting as leadership teams at churches try to figure out how to steward the money, keep high trust environments, invest it, work on excellence, what happens and how people work through things. Let's do a case problem, a thought problem. Don't you like fresh things that are excellent? I would love to paint the auditorium. What's wrong with you? We did that 25 years ago. Tell you what, you know what we could do with the money of that paint? Tell you what, we could do some real stuff for Jesus. I wouldn't mind replacing the carpet. What's wrong with you? We did that 23 years ago. It's a waste of money. I'd like to rip out the pews and put nice chairs in here. That when you walked in, it would give a decorum to the room that would be different. And be receiving. Tell you what. You know what we could fund around the world with that? You know, where is the line? And I realize that if you're operating a country club that is just, uh, let's have amenities for all the members and forget about it. We exist for people who are not even here yet. But when they come, I wouldn't mind the smell of new carpet. And a pad that wasn't suffering from 25 years of sitting upon us. Fresh paint. It would seem like somebody cared about what it was like. And we've already, I appreciate the generosity of God's people. It, it was $83,000 to change the visuals in here that we pushed when we started the doxology. And, you know, toilet seats are $800 these days. You can't do anything without it costing a lot of money. But there's a, there, it, there's a critic. No, I, you can push that edge too far. I get it. But feel the illustration with me. You know what? This woman, in an un restrained moment of loving worship said, I'm going to do something extravagant for Jesus Christ. This is my Savior. Something beautiful for God. Does that drive us? Excellence. Now here's the point in marriage. Have you ever done anything extravagant to celebrate marital love? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, let's get another lien on the house and, you know, go to Bora Bora or whatever, you know. But I want you to know that you don't have an infinite amount of days. We don't have an infinite amount of days to do things together in marriage. Finally, just do it. And do it now. 
Look at verse 10. But Jesus is aware, why do you trouble the woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done, there's the phrase again, it to prepare me for burial. He's not finished. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, truly I say to you, whenever the gospels proclaim the whole world, what she has done. Great marriages are made up of partners who have done things sacrificially on behalf of each other. In fact, the best of them are when you get in a contest and a fight over who's going to do the most in terms of selflessness. Then you get there. Just do it. You know what this woman did? She took advantage of present opportunity. I haven't recovered from reading Mike Mason's description of this in his book, The Mystery of Marriage. Let me read it to you. And so we learn that the best married love from beginning to end must borrow something of the atmosphere of the victorious Christian funeral. There's always a band of ironic, mournfully jubilant New Orleans minstrels winding its way through the hearts of those who really love. For they, even more than others, are called to a daily mourning over one another, a daily anointing, and a preparation for death. This is how Mary showed her love for Jesus, pouring costly ointment on his living flesh, scandalously preparing his healthy body for burial. But how many have died without any such homage, leaving behind huge gaping wounds of unbearable regret in the hearts of those who said they loved them? Regret for not having loved them in life as they discover so painfully that they do in death. Somehow we must learn to mourn our loved while they are yet alive, not waiting until they are gone and our grief does no one but ourselves any good. At least one kiss each day should be watered with tears and planted on the bone, for this sort of wake is really wonder, devotion, faith, wakefulness indeed. The bones must be acknowledged, our respects paid before the flesh can be celebrated, and love must grapple in advance with remorse, drawing out its sting with little daily acts of tribute. For now is the time to eulogize, now the time to deck with flowers, today is the day to carry to its rest the whole weight of our love's flesh upon us. My dad was a great guy, just an old Hilligan, hardworking guy. He had pet peeves in life. One of them was flowers at funerals. He would editorialize, you know, you, after every trip to the funeral, ah, that's the biggest waste, I'll tell you what. Why in the world don't they send the flowers before the person's dead? Who cares after they die? Who cares? He, he would, that, he'd get on his soapbox, okay, Dad, let's hear it. Get it over with. We get in the car, drive home. That's a big waste. At my funeral, I don't want any flowers. You want flowers? Send them to me now while I'm living. I thought of dad this week. It's do it now. Do it now.
That's what she did. She has done what she could, and she did it while she could do it. Serving in a former venue, and by the way, I've been around a lot of angry husbands who have crushed their wives. I've been around angry husbands who have hurt their wives with words so mean. But in this illustration, I'm going to talk to you about a woman. A guy was teaching an ABF class, and he quit. He had a long-standing relationship. I thought, what in the world's that? Dude, what's, what's wrong? Why'd you quit? I thought, i got to go over and see him. So I called him. Hey, can I come over? I want to talk to you. Why'd you quit? I want to reach for you. So I went over and sat in his living room. And I'm sitting there. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. His wife's in the kitchen. And I'm saying, hey, uh, I heard you quit. Why'd you quit? He said, well, Eric, I just, at about that time, his wife stepped in. He said, I'll tell you why he quit. They're seated in front of you as the biggest hypocrite you've ever been around. And she erupted like a volcano. And I mean hateful invectives and attribution of blame and guilt came flying out of her mouth. And it, she unloaded with five minutes of a ceaseless stream. And I was sitting in the chair thinking, is this chair going to catch on fire in the middle of this moment? Finally, she burned out. She's just standing there. And he's just sitting there. And I thought to myself, what in the world am I supposed to do now? You know? <laughs> hey, it's been great to be with you guys today. Thank you. you know? <laughs> then he looked at me and he said, do you have any idea why I have quit? I felt terrible. Fast forward months, maybe more than 12, not 24. I got a call Sunday night. I'm in bed. It's 10 o'clock. I'm exhausted. Hey, he's at the hospital. I said, he's going to the hospital. He's got some chest pain. His wife is with him. So I said, wait a minute. Should I go? It's a regret I have. I didn't go. What's going on? Well, they're checking them out. All right. I'll be there tomorrow. I hung up the phone. Half hour later, I get a call. Hey, he's dead. What? He's dead. What happened? He had a sudden coronary. took his life in the emergency room. He's dead. Begin to walk with the family, the privilege of a pastor, walking with the family through a terrible, terrible week. I'll never forget when I went with the wife to view the mortal remains the first time. Came up to the casket. She put her hands on the casket, and her whole body began to shake. And she wept bitterly. And then she looked at me, after a season of bitter weeping. And she said, we had such a good relationship. And in my mind, I'm living through the experience of being in her living room. And I couldn't help but think that that shaking was regret. I want to deliver you from shaking. Because that kind of shaking. I've also been places where 
A spouse would be next, the mortal remains. And they would be savoring a lifetime of being together and extravagant love. And it was shaking, it was grief, it was loss, but it was the celebration of the wonderful gift of marriage and the grace of God to make a marriage healthy. If you fill a church up with spouses busting caps on alabaster boxes, you'll be a place that'll stand up and say to the world, there is hope, there is life. And in this old broken world reeling from the effects of sin, there's a place of rest, among other places, in a healthy marriage with healthy folks. Let's pray. Father, you know every heart. You know the throb of every single person's heart here. Your fingers on the pulse of every marriage that has a pulse of vitality. Your finger and your arms of love are around every couple who's struggling in this moment. And you want to call us forward to health and life and vitality that stems from a great Savior who's powerfully at work through the gospel in our hearts and lives. Listen to us pray, Lord, right now to you in response to what we've heard. needs to pray who needs to be prayed for who needs to reach out to reach biblical counseling this week let's do business with God and be a real place that experiences the power of the gospel in our married lives help us Lord to those ends I pray in Jesus name Amen